I'm sure there's probably a few other people uh, here this morning who are like me. I, I like to think that I'm a bit of a handyman. Uh, if you were to go and visit the last house that we lived in, you'd be able to see some of my handiwork. Uh, building projects that I became involved in, uh, building a new deck, uh, building garden beds, uh, even fixing up a wall inside the house. Now, that's not to say that I'm particularly good at what I did. Uh, I just like to think that I'm actually quite good at it. Um, very often when I had to do a little handyman job, I'd head down to Bunnings and, uh, and this is where I felt most inadequate as a handyman. See, I go and talk to one of the experts at Bunnings and say, oh, I was planning on doing such and such and I was going to use a what's-a-ma-bob and the guy said, oh, you wouldn't use a what's-a-ma-bob to do such and such. You'd, you'd have to get a thingamajig instead. Now, at this point, I've got absolutely no idea what he's talking about, so I'm just nodding politely now uh, and buying all of the things that he thinks I need to buy even though I have no idea how I'm going to use any of them. I like to think I'm a kind of DIY kind of guy and I think... Elimelech in the very first chapter of Ruth is a bit of a DIY kind of guy as well. Elimelech is a man who's faced with a problem and he adopts that do-it-yourself approach. Now, I'm not sure if you've read through the story of Ruth recently. We've just heard the first chapter of it read, but it really is a wonderful piece of literature. It's a beautiful story and very carefully told. But one of the things that uh, I, I think you're left wondering when you read through the book of Ruth is... Why is this story in the Bible at all? I mean, it seems like such an insignificant story. It's just a story about very ordinary people and very ordinary things happening in their lives. Uh, A friend of mine thought that the subtitle for the book of Ruth should be Two Widows Trying to Make Ends Meet During a Recession because that's really what the story's all about. It's these two ladies whose husbands have both died and, and how they struggle through these difficulties. But there's much more to it than that. This is a story of extraordinary kindness. We see remarkable kindness shown by most of the characters in this story. But above all, this is a story about redemption. So the underlying story of the whole book is really God's kindness and God's redemption of his people. Now, the book has a very clear setting. As Debbie said, it says right in the very opening line of the book, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that should set off a bit of an alarm. Uh, The judges is probably the blackest time in the whole story of the Old Testament. Uh, Let me show you where all of this fits in. Let me give you a bit of an idea. We start with, here's the books of the Bible that lead up to the book of Ruth. Uh, in Genesis, the significant thing for us to notice there is that God made a series of promises to Abraham, promises about land and people and God's blessing. But by the end of the book of Genesis, the people are all still living in Egypt. They're not living in the land that God had promised he was going to give them. So in the book of Exodus, we see them escape Egypt and God brings them to the very edge of the promised land. But unfortunately, the people refuse to enter into the promised land. Uh, They say that the people in there are too powerful and too strong. Even though God has done this dramatic rescue getting them out of Egypt, they're not willing to trust God when it comes to entering into the land. So they spend the next 40 years wandering around in the desert till that whole generation dies and then they're back on the edge of the promised land again. 
And it's Joshua, not Moses, who will lead them into the promised land. Now, after all of that dramatic story, you would think that the book of Judges would be the high point, the great book, that they're now in the land. Life's got to be good, hasn't it? This land flowing with milk and honey. But the book of Judges is just a downward spiral. Every chapter is more depressing than the last. It starts out dark and ends up even darker as the book unfolds. There's a phrase that gets repeated in the book of Judges that I think kind of summarises what the book's about. It's this phrase. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's not complimenting them. That's the big criticism of the people at this time. There was no king and it was a free-for-all. Everyone did whatever he wanted to do. Everyone was living however they wanted to live. There was no king to lead them. There was no one to show them where they ought to be going. This was the time in Israel's history when they probably most lost their moral compass, where they had no idea how it was that they were supposed to be living. And that's the context for the book of Ruth. This dark, dark time in Israel's history. Now, you might have noticed it uh, when the passage was being read out to us, but right at the beginning of the book of Ruth, we're given the names of all of these people. Uh, See it there in verse number 2, chapter 1, verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and and Killian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, names for us today don't tend to mean terribly much. We do know that they've got a meaning, but we don't really dwell too much on what names mean. But in Hebrew culture, names not only had a meaning, but the name was what it meant. So in this passage, we have the name Elimelech. Eli means God, Melech means king. So Elimelech quite literally means God is my king. Now, now, when you know that names mean something, this passage sounds a little differently when you actually read out the meaning rather than the Hebrew word. Uh, let me show you what I mean. The man's name was God is my king. His wife's name was Pleasant and the names of the two sons were Sickly and Failing. They were from the fruitfulness tribe, from the house of bread, Judah. They went to Moab and lived there. Elimelech means God is my king. But this is at a time in Israel's history when they're seriously ignoring God. God has no part to play in the life of Israel. They were from the tribe of Ephraim, which means fruitfulness. They were from the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. But did you notice there's a famine in the land? There's no fruitfulness. There's no bread in the house. Things are so desperate that the family have to leave. They take their two sons, sickly and failing, who are about to live up to their name in just a few verses, and they head off to Moab. We're told (coughs) that they've moved to Moab because of the famine in the land. See, Elimelech thinks this is their best shot. This is the best chance that they've got. Get out of the famine, get out of the land where things are going so badly and head over to Moab. This is a very big decision for people at that stage. This meant moving away from the land that God had given them. 
This meant moving to a foreign land uh, and a land where the Moabites were one of the great enemies of Israel. But he thinks that this is their only option. No sooner do they move to Moab and Elimelech dies, the first in a series of tragic events for this family. Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. Now again, this was not advisable for God's people to be intermarrying with other other women from other countries, largely because you'd end up inheriting their gods as well. But they intermarry with these two Moabite women. They live there for the next 10 years and then we read that both of them tragically die as well. And not only do they die... But after 10 years of marriage, they die without any children. Married for 10 years, yet neither of them has a child, let alone a son and heir. The family had moved to Moab because they thought this was the only hope that they had. But now the situation looks more hopeless than ever. Naomi, now getting on in years, is left living in a foreign country with no family of her own, just these two Moabite daughters-in-law. And life for a widow back then was not easy. No social security, no Medicare safety net, no pensions, no $2.50 travel cards for public transport. She'd have to fend for herself. So what will she do? What options has she got? Well, in verse 6, a little glimmer of hope comes, and I want you to notice how it's actually worded. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people... By providing food, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Naomi now sees that the only hope they have is to go back to Bethlehem. Naomi ultimately tells her two daughters-in-law that they should stay. There's no point in them following her back to Bethlehem. She tries to convince them that they're going to have a better chance of finding a husband in Moab than they will in Bethlehem. There won't be any good Jewish boys interested in marrying Moabite women in Bethlehem. She tries to convince them to stay. Orpah decides that she will stay. But then in verse 16, we've got these extraordinary words from Ruth. Just beautiful words. Look at it in verse 16. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. They're amazing words, aren't they? I mean, think about Ruth's situation. She stands to gain nothing by going to Bethlehem. She's opting for a much, much harder life. It's remarkable kindness that she shows to her mother-in-law. She is determined to stay with Naomi. She's determined to continue to look after and care for Naomi. So they make their way back to Bethlehem. But this is coming home the hard way, isn't it? I'm sure you've known people who faced a similar kind of thing. (coughs) Pardon me. People who've moved away and been forced to come back. Friends who moved away because of the great business opportunity and the, the new lifestyle that they'd be able to live in a different part of the country. Everything looked just right. That was until the car accident 
and then the business started to fail. They ended up having to sell their house to cover all of their debts and they returned home completely shattered by the experience. They returned home having to face those they've left behind. They returned home, not that they should, but they feel embarrassed about what's happened. They left with money and the hope of a new future and they return home broke and broken. Well, that's Naomi's story, isn't it? She left Bethlehem with a family, with a husband and two sons. She returns home having lost her husband and her two sons. She returns home to a very uncertain future. Can you imagine how she felt when she walked back into Bethlehem? Can you imagine how she felt when she heard those whispers? Wow, is that really Naomi? And then there's one more name that's significant. The one that you find in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Mara, as you can probably guess means bitter. She's gone away pleasant, she's gone away full, but she's returned empty and she's returned bitter. Now, if you had to pick the one word that sums up what the book of Ruth is about, I'm pretty sure kindness is the word that jumps out. It's a word that gets used a number of times throughout the passage. But as chapter 1 closes, Naomi thinks that she's been shown anything but kindness by God. She feels as though God's hand is actually against her. But I'm not sure she's seeing the whole picture. Sure, things have been hard, and I don't want to be insensitive about that for a moment. But I think this might be the broccoli's cold. I think that might be the problem that she's got. I mean, think about the kindness that God has shown to her. He's come to the aid of his people, relieving the famine in Bethlehem. That's what it says in verse number six. God has made it possible for her to return home. He gives them safe passage from Moab to Bethlehem. No small thing for two women traveling alone in those days. He gave Naomi two daughters-in-law who loved her and cared for her in Moab. She admits that, verse eight. But above all, God has provided her with Ruth, a daughter-in-law who is completely devoted to her. She may have lost her sons, but can you flip over to chapter 4 and verse 15? Look at how Ruth is described at the end of this book. Chapter 4, verse 15, partway through, the ladies say, For your daughter-in-law, that is Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Naomi has a daughter-in-law who's better to her than her two sons and five more on top. When Naomi comes home, I think she's wrong in her assessment. She walks into Bethlehem with Ruth by her side and then announces this, verse 20, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I feel like the next verse should read, then Ruth said, excuse me, I'm standing right here, you know. 
But something tells me she might be a little bit too gracious to do that. What does she mean she's come back empty? In the midst of her hardship, Naomi fails to see the incredible kindness that Ruth has shown to her. But more than that, Naomi fails to recognise the kindness that God has shown to her. If she wants God to take the blame for all of the tragic events that have happened, then she's got to be happy for him to take the credit for all of the wonderful things that have happened to her as well. She just can't see them. Well, not at the moment anyway. But I want to say, I think this passage should be a bit of a wake-up call for all of us, shouldn't it? There's another story about great family tragedy in the pages of the Old Testament, not too far past the book of Ruth. The story of Job, a family devastated by terrible events. And how does Job respond to his first round of tragedy? Oh, so this is a map just showing you where it was that they actually went from Bethlehem over into Moab. But here's how Job responds to his first tragedy. He says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And following the second round of suffering, his wife goes to him and says, Why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just curse God and get all of this over and done with? And look at what he says to his wife. He replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See, Job and Naomi both have one thing in common. They both know that things don't happen by chance. Things don't happen by accident. There is a God who orders the affairs of this world. We may not always be able to see why God has ordered them in the way that he has. We may not always understand why God has allowed certain things to happen to us in our life. But we know that God knows why those things have happened. And we know that God rules over those things. See, I think the first lesson that we should learn from the book of Ruth is the lesson that Naomi gives us here. Make sure that you don't become bitter when you face hardship. Christian life's not about trusting God when things are going well, but then being bitter when things aren't going quite the way that I had hoped. The Christian life is about trusting God and knowing that he's got it under control, especially when things are going hard. See, in life, we're going to face hardships. We're going to face those times when we will be tempted to be bitter. What do you think those temptations are for you? When are you most likely to feel a little jaded with God, perhaps even bitter? about what's happened? Is it work when things don't go at all the way that you'd hoped? Is it home where there are often strained relationships? Maybe it's here at church that you have difficulties with others or with how things are done. Maybe it's health issues in your life that leave you feeling bitter. Maybe you're bitter about your financial circumstances and can't understand why God would let that happen. When are you tempted to be bitter 
about the circumstances that God has placed you in. See, the next time that you're tempted to feel bitter, you need to do what Naomi didn't do. You need to look at the whole picture. You need to look at all that God has done for you. Don't just focus on how cold the broccoli is. Think about how great everything else is. We have a God who's shown incredible kindness to us in his son Jesus. Through Jesus we know God. Through Jesus we experience God's forgiveness. Through Jesus we have eternal life. And Jesus promises that he will always be with us. He promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those words of Ruth there, she says that, may God deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates the two of us. Well, the Apostle Paul takes that one step further in Romans chapter 8. He talks about God sticking with us (coughs) and that not even death can separate us from God's love. Let me read for you from Romans chapter 8 and let me finish with these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.